After marking hymn number 119, I would invite your attention again to that text that was read just a few moments ago, taken from our Lord's wonderful Sermon on the Mount. As we make ready to consider a portion of the Word of God this morning, how thankful we are for the presence of each and every one, of course, as Brother Dennis has already mentioned. Blessed, as usual, with a good number of, of ourselves who are healthy and able to be with us today, and also visitors who've come our way, and for you, we're very happy and thankful. And we certainly hope to get to know you better before, before you depart our place today. As we make a consideration of the Word of God from time to time, it is truly a remarkable matter to notice how it touches all the components and all the aspects of our lives. There is literally no stone left unturned. I'd ask you to notice some introductory thoughts about this lesson entitled, Love Your Enemies. We appreciate the fact, of course, that there are many specifics related to the relationships and interactions that you and I exhibit with other people. There are those, of course, whom we love very dearly, those whom we get along with ever so peaceably and ever so goodly. We also know, though, that there are those who we find it more challenging in order to get along with, at least in any reasonable way. For after all, we know that there are those who tend to treat others kindly, respectfully and in a good way and just as certainly as that can be said there are others who more often than not it would seem tend to treat others rather disrespectfully and in a way that's harsh or abrasive and in a way that can be exceedingly trying of one's patience perhaps to put that in other words we appreciate some of the very matters that Jesus addressed in this sermon on the mount you and I know that there are kind neighbors and friends and those whom we e easily love and have friendly concord with. I've listed some thoughts near the bottom of this screen. Can we not remember some of the peaceful and easy ways that we can appreciate the loving nature of family and friends? We have no difficulty getting along with them. But isn't it sometimes challenging to try to understand and find a way to get along with those who are less lovely those who it seems have a disposition of ugliness or meanness in that, they do not wish the best for you or me. In other words, they're our foe, our enemy, our adversary. It is a trying matter, isn't it, to sometimes behave in a matter most easily understood as Christian-like toward those who have that disposition. How should the Christian behave toward an enemy? How should the Christian behave toward one whose interest it is, in fact, to be hurtful or harmful or despising toward me or you. Isn't that a challenge? Jesus addressed that in the text before us today. How do we deal with those who would be our enemies? I've listed some passages near the bottom of that screen. We might remember that there was a case in the Old Testament. Did Naboth have any enemies? We remember that Jezebel, in fact, desired him to be put to death and carried out that end, at least indirectly. Naboth had her as an enemy, and in many ways her husband Ahab as well. You, you and I, too, may have those who do not always wish the best for you and me. There may be those who do not look upon you and me as kindly as we might wish they would. Let us begin this particular lesson by asking, how should the Christian treat those that would be our enemies? As we begin that lesson, let's cast the spotlight more broadly upon this Sermon on the Mount and put it in its interesting context. Early on in this gospel, according to Matthew, Jesus himself immediately delivered what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Three glorious and majestic chapters in which chapters 5 through 7 
he sets forth some of the most powerful teachings to be found anywhere in the gospel according to Matthew. Some of the things, of course, that he noted. Some of the things he set forth. The amazing contrast between that law of Moses, that law which the Jews and the Pharisees and others so beautifully appreciated, and that law that would characterize his governmental rule as the head of the church. For instance, four times in this chapter, and you probably have noted it often, this phraseology, you have heard that it hath been said, but I say unto you. In all four of those instances, those passages I listed, verses 21, 31, 38, and 43, the Lord brought to their attention something with which they were familiar in that they had heard the scribes or the doctors of the law proclaimed. But our Lord did not stop at that point. It's true enough that you have heard this, but he immediately follows it with a statement, but I say unto you. And in every one of those instances, he either greatly extended that teaching that he had heard or that they had heard, or else he replaced it entirely with a much superior law. In fact, that's the case with respect, at least in part, to this text before us beginning in verse number 43. That very verse again reads, Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Let us cast the spotlight, if we might, on verse 43, more intently, at least for the next few moments. The Lord began it in that familiar way, You have heard that it hath been said. No doubt many of the rabbis and those that were the teachers of the Jewish law had made pronouncements about the character of this which the Savior had just stated. You've heard that it hath been said by these who are your teachers, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Let's start word by word and look more interestingly at the way the Savior presents that teaching. Love thy neighbor. We understand more than once that we find words found in God's Bible about the nature of that teaching. Love thy neighbor. We may turn back as far as Leviticus 19, verses 17 and 18, and find there the verbatim statement that even under the law of Moses, it was the will and requirement of God that those Israelites love their neighbor. In fact, that's the very verbatim wording as verse number 18 of that chapter closes. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Jesus would quote that in the New Testament, would he not? And in fact, in other writings in the New Testament, we find those wordings appearing again. In Galatians 5.14, for instance, Paul, in that marvelous letter to the Galatian brethren, again said that the greatest of these dispositions of law is love your neighbor as yourself. In Romans 13, verse 9, as Paul made that remarkable and inspired defense of the gospel and the nature of the fact of what it demanded, one more time he said that the pinnacle of law was to love your neighbor as yourself. Perhaps in light of those, I've listed that most familiar passage probably, that Good Samaritan parable of Luke 10, verses 25 to 37. On that occasion, our Savior revealed a remarkable teaching in that here a Levite and others of the Jewish community offered no aid to that man that himself was in such difficult situation. Thieves had left him half dead after having robbed him, and we might note that not only did the Levite pass by on the other side, so did the priest. Ultimately, it was a lowly Samaritan. And I use that word lowly from a Jewish perspective. 
they had no dealings with Samaritans, John 4, verse 9. And yet this one was the very one who offered succor and aid and help. And the Lord ended that by saying, which showed mercy, and the lawyer said the one who in fact showed him mercy, he was the one that was the neighbor. Jesus then commanded, go and do thou likewise. Leaving no misunderstanding for what was demanded, not only of that lawyer of that day, but us as well, to be a neighbor. I've listed some thoughts about, though, what that word neighbor implies. In that context, we noted from Leviticus 19, there the word neighbor had to do with those that were of the same nationality of Israel, one that was physically near. But as we just noted in that Good Samaritan parable, the Lord extended that significantly. A neighbor, anyone who is in need, and those who you and I are able to assist, that is our neighbor regardless whether they live nearby or not. Isn't it interesting that you and I are encouraged to do good unto all men, especially unto those who are of the household of faith. Galatians 6, verses 9 and 10. As you and I are urged to do good unto all, we immediately are led to ask about our enemies. In what way are we to interact with them? Are we to hate them as these Pharisees and others had heard it said? Notice that we should define the word love. Notice that word has appeared, love thy neighbor. That's the translation of the Greek word agape. Now, there's more than one Greek word for love. As, for example, in John 21, we remember that there are two different words for love appear. For the Greeks had more than one word to characterize a kinder type of love. And even so, we might understand at times the utility of such a thing. But at least in the English, we do not have another word for love. Thus, when you and I say that I love ice cream and yet I love my wife, it's the same word, although I think we each appreciate that I don't love ice cream quite the same way I love the news. But in Greek, there were different words to characterize love. One of them was agape. That word, as you can see by its definition, means a selfless goodwill based upon choice and evaluation. A person makes a willful volition to extend selfless goodwill to another. That would be behaving according to a God As one considers that, Jesus, of course, would not only make note of the fact they'd heard that concerning a neighbor, he will employ it with respect to an enemy in just a moment. With those comments made, let's look at the next part of that verse, where they had also heard it said that one was to hate one's enemy. What do these words imply? Well, first, that word hate means to detest. It does mean to hate. In fact, it means to pursue hatred of. This is, again, the meaning of that word employed. But notice that word enemy relates to one who does hate, and furthermore, one who wishes to injure or to act in an ill way toward another. Thus, these Jews had heard it taught. They had heard it said. That it's appropriate to hate one's enemy. At the very top of that comment, I've made note of the fact that though they had heard that, might we inquire, was that merely a rabbinical teaching or had the Old Testament actually presented that? Was it the will of God that in Old Testament times the Israelites were to openly and with direct nature hate those that were their enemies? At least in my searching, Though I found passages in which 
the word enemy was used and in which the word was itself employed. I did find no reference to that as a command of God. Rather, in all those instances where that might be thought to be the teaching, this is what appeared. It was the Almighty God of heaven extending the character of His judgment upon those that have rejected His will. As, for example, in Deuteronomy 7, when the children of Israel were shortened to enter into Canaan, God told them, Have no dealings with the Canaanites. Do not intermarry with them. In fact, you are given sentence to put them to death. Now, did Israel hate them in a way that would be descriptive of the words before us in Matthew 5? They were obeying God's command on that wicked generation of people living in the land of Palestine. That was God's judgment on them. That was not an open, willful choice of hate on the part of Israel. In Psalm 139, verses 19 to 21, we see again a very similar passage where David made note of the hatred that he felt toward the evil ways of others, not the persons themselves. That alone challenges us to appreciate that though those Jews had heard this teaching, as far as loving one's neighbor, that was the will of God. But in terms of hating one's enemy, openly pursuing hatred or envy or other things illly towards them, that was not directly God's teaching. Although it might be safe, that certainly in regard to one's enemy, the easy thing to do is to just simply treat them, at least in part, the way that they have treated us. Isn't that the natural behavior? In fact, isn't that sometimes what our culture tends to teach? Do unto others as they have done unto you. Have you seen commercials in which something like that's presented? Or have you, in fact, heard others make some statement like that? It's a, it does sound similar to the golden rule, but it is far, far removed from it. If others have treated me kindly, respectfully, and in a good way, then that's the way I'll treat him or her. But if that person has been mean to me, if they've spread rumors that were ugly and, in fact, blasphemous about me, slanderous in character, then I'll do the same to him. In essence, I'll do what he's done to me. Again, that's the common teaching of our world, it seems. It's at this point we must ask, how did Jesus say our response ought to be? Are we to hate our enemies? Are we to pursue hatred toward them? Are we to behave in such a way to, in fact, openly condemn the very person, not only him, but what he's done? That leads us to ask very in the next verse, verse 44. So far, we've appreciated you've heard that it hath been said. Let's now turn to Jesus' response, but I say unto you. And with that said, let's analyze more carefully verse 44. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. The same word love that had appeared in verse 43 is exactly in Greek the same word here. That is the pursuit of this selfless goodwill by choice of volition, evaluation, if you will. That's what here the Savior commands. I say to you in my kingdom and according to my will, love your enemies. We might could well imagine that amongst the audience, some of their mouths probably dropped open. Some of them may have been shocked to hear Jesus' teaching. Some of them may have been, in fact, somewhat alarmed and surprised to hear him say, I'm telling you, 
according to the will of God and in my kingdom, love your enemies. Pursue selfless goodwill toward them. I've listed some of the statements on that sheet that certainly should appear in our mind. Did Jesus say this would become naturally easy to us? Did he say that it would be a very easy matter to accomplish? He did not, did he? In fact, I think we each, from our own understanding, realize that more often than not, that's not the easiest of things to accomplish. That person who has so behaved himself or herself in a way to injure or harm me or my family, and yet, in regard to disposition, I should pursue selfless goodwill toward that person. Love your enemies, Jesus said. Well, in fact, that is what he said. I cannot by any way reduce, remove, eliminate, or in fact turn aside the fact of what the Lord revealed. Love your enemies. In fact, could we remember the example of Jesus? Do we have examples in the Bible of those who found themselves by approval of God behaving in this way? I think we do. Let's use our Savior himself. Here was one who lived a sinless life, Hebrews 4.15. And in so doing, he set the perfect example before all, 1 Peter 2, 21-23. But now might we ask, as we reach the conclusion of his life in the flesh, we read in Mark the 15th chapter, verse 10, that he knew for envy that they had delivered him. The Lord was able to read the heart, you see. And he knew that on the occasion of his trial, on the matter of his appearance before Pilate, others had delivered him for envy. It was not a legitimate sentence of law. It was not a legitimate concern of matters of Roman government. It was envy. And yet, that leads us to Luke, the 23rd chapter. For amazingly enough, in verses 21 and 34, we read these. That very mob before whom he stood, the very one whom Pilate had been asked to give sentence, they cried out with blood, as it were, dripping from the venom of their tongues, crucify crucify their envy and their hatred had reached the boiling point and they desired his life to be taken. And yet to that very mob, 13 verses later, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Isn't that a disposition toward one's enemies? Toward those who wished ill will toward him? Toward those who in fact were so desirous of his death that they would desire a murderer over him? One who had in fact violated the character of Roman law. To say all of that is to say that our Savior exhibited a rather remarkable feeling of how one should love one's enemies. To say that is to say that there's more in this verse. Is it not, from our own disposition, a stroke of genuine godliness when one can at least for the moment set aside the meanness, the character of evil, the feeling of hatred that has been exhibited and at least extend a selfless choice of evaluation and goodwill toward that person. Now, we should be quick to say, again, there's more than one Greek word for the word love. Did Jesus command in this passage that I am to love my enemy the same way I love my wife? Had he commanded that, I freely confess that would have been impossible for me. I cannot so willfully love that person who has acted toward me or my family in a hurtful way that has brought injury and perhaps even tears. I cannot 
extend the same type of love to that person as I do to my children or my wife. But the Lord did not command that of me. He commanded rather of us that by selfless choice of goodwill, I can at least wish the best for that person. I can perhaps rebuke that person for what he or she has done to me and my family. But in so doing, the other Greek word that would describe the type of love for a wife, for example, that's not the one the Lord used here. In fact, as we'll see in just a moment with some other passages, what are some other things that help us understand this? How can this be? In Romans, the 12th chapter, Paul addressed this matter. In fact, if one were to have an enemy, how did Paul say we're to act toward that person? Beginning in verse 17 of that chapter, recompense to no man evil for evil. We may immediately pause. Is Christianity a Christianity of retaliation and vengeance? No. Recompense to no man evil for evil. If someone has done me evil, it should not be my desire to return evil for the same thing that person has done for me. We're getting closer to what it means to love that enemy, aren't we? Let's read further in that same passage. Romans 12, verse 17 and following. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. As much as life in you live peaceably with all men, verse 18. And then verse 19. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. And then he quotes a very statement from God. Verse number 19, Romans chapter 12. We notice there God himself says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. You and I should understand that those who have acted evil to me, to you, to our families, will one day stand before the august presence of the God of heaven and he will do what is right. Genesis 18, verse 25. And when he does what is right, they shall give answer for what they've done. If they have slandered, if they've blasphemed, if they've libeled, if they have injured, if they have harmed, they will have to answer to him for that. Judgment is not left to you and me in that sense. We're not the ones to execute judgment upon them for that which they've done in that way. Does Paul say that we cannot challenge them? Can we rebuke them for what they've done? Can we bring to their attention the fact they've harmed us? Sure we can. In fact, in Luke 17, 3, we're commanded to do that. In fact, we urge him to repent of what he has done, but we can't force him to. We can't make him be sorrowful for what he's done. We should understand that that passage in Romans 12 goes a step further. Verse number 20. If thine enemy hunger, feed him. If thine enemy thirst, give him drink, and in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head. And finally, the chapter closes in verse 21. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. If thine enemy hunger, feed him. We see here perhaps the greatest installment of these matters that we've seen. If that person who has done me wrong comes to my door and openly confesses that he is without food, it would be my duty as a Christian, not as though I would love him again as my children or wife, but to pursue selfless goodwill to at least provide him something to eat. That would be my duty given to me by the God of heaven. If thine enemy hunger, feed Love your enemies. We note that in those passages we just read, Paul not only addressed it here, but addressed it later in 1 Thessalonians 5. In verse 15 of that closing chapter, he again in, helped us see 
that retaliation is not a matter of Christian disposition. In fact, did he not there say, see that no man render evil for evil, but rather pursue that which is good. It takes, again, a genuine stroke of godly disposition, doesn't it? To recognize that we're not to turn evil for what evil has been done to others. We're not to turn that which is wrong for what wrong has been accomplished toward us. Though that itself isn't easy, that's the way of God. Joseph exhibited a characteristic like that, didn't he? In Genesis 37, we remember his brothers, out of envy and jealousy, sold him ultimately what would finally be into Egyptian slavery. And later, when Joseph had opportunity to exact all the vengeance he could ever desire, did he take that opportunity? Those brothers bowed before him, not knowing who he was. He could have struck them all dead at that point. And in fact, they were fearful he might even do such a thing after their father passed away. But yet, what did Jacob, what did Joseph say? He said, what you meant for evil, God has meant for good. And God has allowed me to be not only your deliverer from that great famine, but has brought good to us. Isn't that a grand disposition of how he reacted toward those who had acted as his enemies? Later, Saul tried to kill David twice. And yet, how did David act toward him? Did he try to take Saul's life? More than once, he had the opportunity. In the wilderness of Engedi, and also in the cave mentioned in 1 Samuel 26, David stood over Saul, who himself was asleep, and David could have taken his life. And yet David would not do it. In fact, he said, He is the Lord's anointed, and it does not behoove me to act so toward him. May we notice that we too should not seek to pursue evil for evil, but rather to pursue that which is good. As Jesus continued in this discussion of these verses, we have looked a bit at verse number 44. Let's look at the remainder of it. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Could we make observation of that next phrase in the verse? The King James Version reads it as follows. Bless them that curse you. Likely the verbs that appear in the Greek would be better translated by the phrase that I have placed on the screen, which reads, to pray for them that persecute you. If we make note of that very fact, to that person who has persecuted me, or that person who's persecuted you or someone you hold so dear, Jesus said, pray for them. Pray for them. Isn't prayer one of the quickest tools and one of the quickest ways to ease the feeling of anger or wrath or hatred that might be within us? For if we can genuinely pray for that person's well-benefit and genuinely utter a prayer to the God of heaven for their well-being, we've taken a gigantic step toward easing, and at least from our point of view at least, completely doing away with that anger, that enemy status, and that hatred. Who knows but what in a short amount of time that the great providence of God would work things to where that person would no longer be my enemy. But rather we might enjoy at least a kind of fellowship that's not antagonistic, at least not openly hostile. These kinds of things challenge us perhaps to notice that the word persecute means to molest or to harass. Do you and I know individuals who persecute me in the sense that they make life harder than it needs to be. 
they act toward in toward me in ways that are mean. They act toward me in ways that seek to belittle me in the eyes of others. We each may know someone like that. Pray for them. Or utter a prayer on their behalf to God that situations, that that disposition, they might come to understand how hurtful it is. And in such a way that they might understand how it feels to themselves be placed in that kind of situation. As verse 44 marches onward, we notice that there are many other things stated in the King James translation. Although it should be fair to say that in the Greek wording, and in fact in the American Standard Translation, the last two clauses in that phrase do not appear. And hence, I haven't discussed them, at least on that screen either. Those phrases, do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. We see the sentiment of those things already expressed. What about the example of Stephen? I'm reminded in Acts, the seventh chapter of this one, who himself was so persecuted, so opposed by others about him. It was the case that Stephen was a dramatic preacher of the gospel. He had been one of those seven selected in Acts chapter 6. And on this occasion, as he delivered a magnificent sermon about Old Testament history, those Jews listened intently through almost all of it. But when verse 51 arrived, when Stephen reached the point where he says that they had closed their ears and with themselves would not be subject to the law of God, that was more than they could take. They gnashed on him with their teeth and picked up rocks and stoned him to death. What can we see, though, in the disposition of Stephen? Here was a mob that had just killed him. They were in the process of throwing rocks at him. And while they were doing it, in verses 59 and 60, Stephen prayed for them. He prayed for them. The very ones that were lunging rocks at his head, he prayed for them. Talk about loving one's enemies. Stephen had a disposition to desire the best for them. He knew they were immortal spirits and they needed to be urgent in the response to the gospel. He knew they needed to know God's love. He prayed for them even as they were killing them. That reminds us again of what Jesus did, wasn't it? When he prayed for them after they had just nailed the hand, nails in his hands and his feet. He also prayed for that mob and for that group. To love one's enemies as we've discussed it today is such that we might ask, well, why should we love our enemies? After all, they have been so mean to us. Certainly one reason that might be given is because God said so. But notice in verse 46, there's something else stated. Maybe there's a secondary reason. For if you love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. And that statement that prefaced all of that, verse 45, began with the word that. Notice that that in English often connotes the reason for something being done. That some purpose might be accomplished. Here it's that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. If we expect to be the children of God, if we expect to be those that are members of his family and faithful ones at that, we must love our enemies. It is no difficulty to love those that are kind to us, to love those that act so nobly and friendly toward us. But he says if we are to be the children of our Father in heaven, we must love our enemies. 
it might be at this point we can pause and ask, didn't God do that? And doesn't He do that each and every moment of every day? There was a time, of course, that you and I were ourselves in sin. And as such, God was enemy to us. We were enemy to Him. But yet He still loved us. But God commended His love toward us in that for we were yet sinners. Christ died for us, Romans 5 8. Thus, he loved me even when I was not responsive to him. And he loved you when you weren't responsive to him either. Maybe in some of the closing comments or thoughts, we can bring to understanding the closing part of verse 45. There are those in our world who really have no interest in God at all. They're atheists or they're agnostics. Or in some other way, they are completely blasphemous of his ways. They encourage others not to follow him. One might think God would never let it rain on that man's garden. One might think God would never let the sun shine on his crops, but yet God does it. He exhibits kindness, devotion, and love toward that person's physical affairs just as he does toward that devoted son. In the language here, Jesus said he extends rain on the just and the unjust. The sun shines on those of the righteous as well as the wicked. Our God, you see, exhibits goodness and love toward all in the flesh physically. But might we know there's coming a day, that day of judgment in which his spiritual character will lead to an eternal judgment. And when he commits many to hell, it'll not be because he hates them. He loved them. He sent his son to die for them. And yet they had no interest in him. One could not say God is unloved. Even on the day of judgment, he will not be unloved but he will be just. And he will judge according to a man's works. Today, then, we should love our enemies. We should extend toward them a type of attitude that God has extended toward all, even to those who hate him. Some of the closing thoughts then might be this. It is natural. We might think to love one's neighbor and hate one's enemy. But Jesus said that's not the way it should be. We should not only love our neighbor, but love our enemy too. For as we've noted in the text in Romans 12, final judgment, the final hatred in terms of that is left for God. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Romans 12, verses 19 and 20. This morning it could be that there's one or more here that still is living as an enemy to God. You have never entered fellowship with Him, and at this moment, though He has sent His Son to die for you, you've rejected it every time. You have turned a deaf ear to his will. You've turned your back upon his love. You've showed no interest in the almighty God who has loved you to the point that he wants you to be with him forever. But there is a part that's left for us. We must obey and respond to his loving grace. If you haven't done that this morning, let today be the day. Let today be the day that you make an open acknowledgement of your desire to live faithfully with him. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Come confessing His sweet name as your Savior. And then be baptized for the remission of sin. If we could aid you in doing that, what a joyful day it will be for us and you. If there's one or more here who has been a Christian and have known the goodness and have tasted the goodwill of God, Hebrews 6, verses 4 and 5, but you have walked away from it. You've allowed other things to bring a sense of hatred into your life, a sense of ill will, let Jesus take care of that. Come back to your first love. 
if we could be of any assistance to you today in either of these ways, to pray for you or to aid you in your confession and baptism, let that be known if you would in a public way, for together we stand now and while we sing.